0: If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand, with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get Asha Continuing Ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Dr. Dave Trina Celeste Gadsen joins me this week for a look into health-related quality of life measures. HRQLs measure the impact of a health condition on the individual's ability to lead a fulfilling life. Researchers have identified determinants of HRQL in stroke survivors with aphasia to include communication, mobility, mental and emotional health, role, and social functioning. Celeste reviews the use of patient-reported outcomes to capture HRQLs in people with aphasia as they may better facilitate client-centered treatment approaches in this population. I am Leanne Porter, your host, and this is the Speech Uncensored Podcast. Well, hello, Celeste. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing good. I am so glad to have you on the podcast. I'm really thrilled for our talk, and I'm really interested to learn more about the health-related quality of life factors with, um, when we're treating our individuals with aphasia. So before we get into that deeper, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, your experience, and your interests.
1: Oh, okay, definitely. So, my name is Dave Trina Celeste Gatson. Um, I am a medical-based speech-language pathologist. I started practicing uh, in the acute care setting in 2007, so going on a little over 12 years, and decided to go back for my PhD in, in 2013, just because I I saw some things that we needed to do different in the field, and so now I'm a doctor, <laughs> which is really really exciting. And yeah, my area is aphasia. I love aphasia. And one of the things that I'm specifically looking at are functional treatment approaches with aphasia, health-related quality of life, and just really seeing where we are in a field with evidence-based practices and merging everything into treating the patient.
0: Awesome. All right. Um, So now we're going to go into our six questions that help us to get to know you a little bit better and our topic a little bit better. So they're all just kind of mixed in there. And each one is a who, what, when, where, why, and how. So let's start with who and who has been an invaluable mentor to your work. Oh, wow. So,
1: I actually have a team of mentors. You know, it's my philosophy. It really takes a village. And so, since I have been in the field for a little bit, whether it's building the professional side or looking at research or uh, from a clinician side, you know, that really depends on who I go to. And I must admit, I'd be nervous to start dropping names in fear of forgetting someone. But yeah, I have a team of mentors that really support me, whether it's Figuring out what I can do next from a professional standpoint, or now in this new role as a researcher, how to uh, stay clinical, but also do research as well. Awesome.
0: All right. Now, what is one resource or technique that you use frequently with patients?
1: Ooh, that's a good one. Um, So one resource that I use really frequently is the common one, the internet. And one of the things when I was practicing more often... I realized that that was something that a lot of individuals wanted to be able to do. And so whether it was using the internet to help them navigate in order to get back to their positions at work or to learn more about their condition or uh, just to learn more about different treatment strategies that they could do independently. And so I would say that I go to the internet, not only for patient care, but also for research for
0: myself. Awesome. And where is your favorite place to meet up with friends?
1: Ooh, my favorite place to meet up with friends, I would say... I probably like home. I, I'm a homebody and, and, and so why home comes, I'm actually throwing a vision board party this Saturday. And so all my girlfriends are coming over to, to write our visions and set our intentions for the year. And so, um, I like to do a lot of social things at home.
0: Nice. Oh, cool. I'm very much a homebody too. I love having people over because then I don't have to like, then I don't have to waste like 30 minutes driving home. I'm already home. Like- <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. All right. My next question. Why do SLPs need to know about quality of life factors in working with people with aphasia? Oh,
1: my God. Goodness, that's the golden question, right? Well, when I think about just my day-to-day and and anyone's day-to-day, and then we put a condition on there like aphasia or any neurological injury, I think that it's important to really understand from the patient perspective how that condition is impacting them and what is important to them for treatment. Uh, Even when we start to think about how insurance reimbursement is happening and length of care, Without understanding what's important to the patient, I think it makes it challenging for us as practitioners to make sure that we're doing something that's going to last them until that next therapy dollar is available. And so quality of life is important because the person's life is important and getting them back to aspects of their life that may be compromised now because of the the disorder is important.
0: And when was the last time you heard a really good lecture or a really good talk?
1: Ooh. So I know I might be jumping around a little bit. So now I'm, I'm here at Georgetown University, and it's such an amazing space to the point where we're always doing lectures. We're always doing some types of talks. And so every Wednesday here, uh, all of the people in the neurology department at Georgetown, we go over to National Rehab Hospital for what they call brain plasticity talks. And so I have been exposed to things not only from a speech but path- pathology standpoint, but occupational therapy, neurology. And one of the things that really interests me is getting into race and health inequities and health disparities and how this um, targets the entire body of neurorehabilitation. So I would say uh, the Wednesday before the uh, Christmas holiday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. Oh man, I'm so jealous. That must be Really good stuff, just like you've explained, uh, coming from all, all different angles of what the patient's getting in the hospital, you know, because we're all part of a working system that's contributing to their overall recovery, so...
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that that's the part that is so welcoming to be in that space is that you do have all of these collective minds together and not just the rehab pieces, but the medical doctors. And one of the things that I love being a speech pathologist, because there aren't a lot of us in that that room, in that setting, is that people are really looking to us to help guide uh, the cognition piece, to help guide the communication piece. And so, So I'm excited that everyone has a lot of the same dialogue when it comes to it's neuro rehab. We need to get these individuals better, but also recognizing that speech and language play a huge role in that.
0: All right. So my last one is how do you stay current with the evolving practices in our field? Well, okay. So you just told me one way. (laughs) Anything else?
1: (laughs) Uh, Definitely CEUs. Uh, One of the things where I am now in my career is really diversifying my portfolio and and diversifying my knowledge base. And so recently I was able to attend the Academy of Neurorehabilitation Conference and, and really hear from a global perspective what's going on with neuro rehab. And so I'm trying to keep my hands in a lot of stuff right now just to really be able to treat the whole patient.
0: Wow, that's really exciting. I'm so looking forward to digging more into your brain and the rest of our talk. So now we're going to transition into our discussion period um, where we're going to really flesh out a lot of those ideas that you mentioned during our get to know you and get to know the topic section. So um, let's go ahead and talk more about those health related quality of life and why it's so important.
1: Yeah. And so one of the things, and I don't know how our time works. Um, one of the things when, I, when I'm talking about health-related quality of life to individuals, I always have this little assignment that, that I do. And so, you know, I, I put a minute on the timer, you know, if we have time, we could do 10 seconds on the timer. And I have individual, do we have time? Can I do 10 yeah, seconds? Yeah, let's do Okay, I'm game. Let's go. All right, so 10 seconds on the timer. And what I want you to do is within that 10 seconds, write down everything that you've done within the
0: last 24 hours. Okay. Okay, ready?
1: Okay. Okay. So how many things did you get? One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. Six things. So now I want you to cross off everything on that list that might deal with communication. That might deal with
0: communication. Okay.
1: Because if you have aphasia, your communication may be impaired. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Now I cross off Anything on the list that might deal with cognition or executive functioning, um, because that might also be something that you experience with having aphasia, right? Okay. Oh, got that. And then I have individuals cross off, you know, any mobility type stuff. If it, if it, you know, because sometimes individuals with aphasia will also have the the hemiparesis. And so, what you find? How many things do you have on your list now? One, one, right. And so that's why health-related quality of life is important because I don't know what's on that list. You know what's on that list. And so my role as a therapist is to help you to be able to do that one thing. And so that one thing
0: was sleep. That was the one thing left on my list. (laughs) See? Well, I okay. Here was my list. It was short. You only gave me ten seconds. So here was my list. It was eat, sleep, work, drive, read, and then fix dinner. Yeah. And so the only thing left that didn't require mobility, cognition, or communication was sleeping. Was sleeping.
1: And so I think that that's one of the things that anytime I'm talking about health-related quality of life and I do that task, I always see the light bulbs. And usually I'll give a minute and people have these long lists, but it helps really drive the message home, especially you know, if I'm lecturing future clinicians that- we don't know what's important to them because, you know, everything is different. And so we don't know how the, commun- how the impairments really impact what they're able to do in their day-to-day life. We're not getting that information through an impairment-based assessment. And so I really feel like it's up to us to capture those things that are important through quality of life and target our therapy treatments to be able to get them to, to be able to cook dinner you know, because they,
0: that might be something that they enjoy doing. Yeah. I've met quite a few patients when I'm inquiring their, their chefs, you know, in their home and they love crafting a delicious meal and it gives them so much pleasure to feed their family members. Exactly.
1: And so if we, aren't asking those questions, then we're not allowing ourselves to to partner with you know o t or partner with some of the other disciplines that can help support that ultimate goal for the client
0: yep, well, I'm on board that was very clearly explained, and now it is impactful like it's it is it just clarifies that it's like we do so much more than lip service like yes of course quality of life is important because we care about people and we care about them getting back to their life um but when you really illustrate it that way it's very eye opening so right right because then those are
1: the things that those are some of the things that we're dealing with with those individuals they go from being able to do those six things independently to now they're not able to do those things. And so what if we can bring them back into at least being able to do some of them within our timeframe that we have with therapy dollars?
0: Okay. So um, we're looking at uh, health related quality of life. So we need to measure it at the beginning and kind of during and post therapy. So there should be ways that we can track improvements from our interventions related to their quality of life. Right. So how do we measure this? What are the tools available for us?
1: Yeah. So there are a couple of different ones. I know, you know, some clinicians may develop their own strategies, uh, or, or informal types of assessments as far as, you know, how do you feel today? How was your sleep? You know, rate your, rate your emotions. And then we have some really objective ones. I think that the field is doing great with going into some of those patient reported outcomes. We look at the stroke and aphasia quality of life scale. Um, That's a huge one coming out of London that looks at physical communication and psychosocial uh, performance. We have uh, the communication effectiveness um, index that um, is more of an observable tool or something that can be used with a a proxy if need be, but we'll get into that proxy piece. Um, And so that's a tool there. We have the ALA, the Assessment for Living with Aphasia. That tool was specifically developed to not only measure the quality of life components, but to also give us some treatment ideas.
0: Um, that sounds very appealing. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the things I always say when I was when I was doing clinical supervision and and graduate clinicians were beating their heads on what types of therapy activities. I would say, well, what did the patient identify that they want to do? And oftentimes people didn't know. But if you use some of these patient reported outcome measures, then they'll say, I used to be able to talk on the phone and I can't. Or um, when I'm in social conversations, people have difficulty understanding me. That's huge right there. What do we need to do to be able to to help bridge that gap?
0: Mm -hmm. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and um, it was like a TED interview. And so it was a psychologist out of Harvard. And so I had to like stop the podcast and like write this down because I was like, this is so speech related. I can't even, but he said, um, conversation is a social activity in which people cement bonds between them. And so when they don't have that ability to carry on a conversation with their loved ones or strangers or anybody, how are we connecting anymore? And that's what leads to that social isolation, which really impairs quality of life significantly. So, okay. Exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I agree. I remember when I worked clinically, uh, before I went back for my PhD, I was at National Rehab Hospital. So it's so amazing. I feel like I've come full circle to now be uh, back there. And so it was a space to where it was interdisciplinary, literally the perfect outpatient setup. We had OTPT, neuropsych, And we would work together all the disciplines to really understand what the patient wanted. And I have this one patient. She was a social butterfly. I mean, your typical Wernicke's patient, she'd come in and it would be complete word salad. But she enjoyed that piece. And so, and it would bother her family because, you know, they would say, well, no one's understanding what she's saying and she just, but you could hear in her intonations. And so our therapy was working on scripted types of conversation that she could use when she went into certain spaces to be able to to keep with that social butterfly piece.
0: That's awesome. I love that because I think a lot of people, when we um, have a person with Warnicke's on our caseload, we might get like, okay, how, what do I do? How do I address this? So I really love the example that you gave and capitalizing on what was important to the patient and what skills they had and the tools that are available to us. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've mentioned three objective, um, patient reported outcome measures so far. Um, do you, are there any other ones? Oh yeah, I have more. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm ready. I'm writing them all down. So please. Okay. Continue. Okay. Okay. Um, so another one is the
1: coast. I can get you the list. There, there are a couple, um, uh, a couple of assessments. I actually have a paper in review right now that um, is reviewing all of them. So I'll definitely get you a list. I know, right? <laughs> um, I'll get you a list of all of the assessments, as well as some blurbs about which ones may be better for different settings, and then you can include it. As part of the notes if that's okay.
0: I is that okay? That would be golden. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, please. <laughs> okay, definitely. yeah there
1: are, um, there are six or seven that I identify that work with you know really well within different different settings, work re- really well depending on the severity of the person. and so I'll make sure to send you that that list of those as soon as we finish.
0: Excellent. All right. So after the COAST, um, what are some other ones that you have?
1: Um, and so we have the COAST. We have the um, ASHA QCL, the Quality Communication Life one. That one's a good one. Um, very, very uh, easy, focused, um, straight, straightened down, so to
0: say. Um, okay. Okay. I think I've used the Communication Effectiveness Index. Um, Is that one also looking a little bit at motor speech-wise as well?
1: The Communication Effectiveness Treatment Index, that one? Is that, that the one you said? I'm sorry. I think it's just the CEI. Oh, um that one I'm not familiar with. Now the CETI, the SETI, is one um that looks at communication, I believe communication competence, uh, but that's a that's a one that's really good for proxy as well. And so you know, some scholars may we, some scholars may disagree with me on this one, um, but I'm always very cautious when I allow a proxy, uh, a, an individual's family member, to rate their quality of life. And, I, you know, the argument on why people say that you should do it, especially if someone has severe aphasia and things of that nature, is because the individual's reliability could be wrong. You know, They may not be able to reliably rate their quality of life. And so then how do we know that this is really what it is? It fluctuates is another thing that I hear often. But honestly, if you ask me my quality of life today versus three months ago, it is going to fluctuate. And so I am not the biggest fan of a proxy or a family member rating the individual's quality of life. Mhm-hmm, <laughs>
0: yeah I, I can see the argument against it because um, they might have a different perspective on what their loved one is actually going through. It might be um, I don't know how to ex- explain it like maybe they have a rosier picture or maybe not. Maybe they think that their loved one is um, has a much much worse off quality of life than maybe what that individual is experiencing. So I could see where, when it's coming from somebody else's perspective, it may not be as accurate. Um, at the same time, if the patient's unable to fill it out, I mean, the closest thing you're going to get is the person who lives with them, cares for them day in and day out and, and knows when that person's getting frustrated about things. Right. right, Right. Right. So I
1: agree. I think that there's room for both. Um, I'm just a huge advocate of let's definitely try to get it from the the patient first. Um, And I did, did pull up COAST. So it's the communication outcome after stroke test. After stroke test. Mm -hmm. So we have the ALA, the assessment for living with aphasia, the COAST communication outcome after stroke test, the um, I said the ASHA, the ASHA QCL is uh, another, another really good one.
0: And what was the very first one you mentioned? All I wrote down was it was out of London. (laughs) The Sequ... well,
1: I I was corrected last time I said this. Uh, It's the, it's the stroke, it's the um, stroke and aphasia quality of life scale. I say say but I think that's part of my Southern accent that that slips into that. that slips into that one.
0: Well, like, um, you know the ROSS Information Processing Assessment? Mm-hmm. And it's it's abbreviated R I P A. So I'd never heard anyone say the acronym before. So in my head I was like, Oh, it's the RIPA. <laughs> like, apparently it's not. Um, but I will never change it, so <laughs> It's the Ripa forever and ever. Yeah, that's right. And I'm trying to make it a thing. So, you know, if you feel like using it, go for it. I'm going for it. Ripa all day.
1: <laughs> um, another one, the communication disability profile. And again, I'll send I'll send you all of all of these. This is a longer one. Um, but it's one that that definitely assesses uh, activities, participation, emotions, and uh, the community integration questionnaire. So this is one that I've used in place of the the CD, the CETI one because it is really really simple. It's fifteen questions. It was recently um, adapted, or not recently, but it was adapted. Uh, it was originally for individuals with traumatic brain injuries. Uh, they adapted it by including some pictures. And so downfall is we're just looking at the community integration piece, but I feel like it still gives you some information about possible things to to work toward.
0: Excellent. All right. I love that. Any, basically anything that's going to help me out, like help me help them help us all out. It's, it's golden. Um and I think that's what we want help with to see is how to go from the identification to the creation of goals, to the out, the desired outcome that the patient is after by coming to see us for services. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it sounds like these um, health-related quality of life scales, indexes, and everything else um, do that for mm-hmm, us. hmm yeah, I think that it that it's a great tool to help bridge
1: what we already know from an impairment base. You know, by no means do we not need the impairment. We we need that piece because we need to, to to structure and and have those mass practices to help recover those systems. But when I think about structuring therapy in the context, I think you know being able to put it in a context that's most important for the patient is. Is uh is it successful?
0: Now um, I have a, another question about these indexes. Um, how are they standardized or normed? Do they are they used with the uh, variety of patients and cultural influences and backgrounds that are prevalent across the United States, so that they could really reflect what people care about when it comes to communication. Cause one thing you mentioned earlier is, um, you know, sometimes if we're doing an assessment, we'll be like, Oh, okay. I see. These are your problems. Okay. You didn't mention this earlier. I went off on a tangent. <laughs> so, um, we're doing an assessment and we're like, okay, these are your problems. But the patient's actually like, I don't really care about these. I want to work on this instead. So I'm wondering if any, populations in our um, country would get some of these um, quality of life scales and be like, I mean, maybe this one, maybe that one, but like, it doesn't really represent my needs. Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
1: Oh, that's such a great question. And one of the part of my crusade. <laughs> so unfortunately, one of the things that I found when I was doing my dissertation research. And so for my dissertation, I looked at quality of life of African-American stroke survivors. And I, you know, there's not a lot of information out there on African-Americans with aphasia, which is why it was something that was really um, of interest to me. And so when we look at quality of life of, across the board, when it comes to certain cultures and ethnicities, oftentimes, unfortunately, that information is not reported. Or if it is reported, then minorities are usually less than 7% as far as that demographic makeup. And so are these assessments um, uh, appropriate or do they meet those cultural things? I'm not sure about that. Um, but I do think that. They they all are all the all the ones that I mentioned have been validated in people with aphasia, which was something that was huge. You know, for me was, you know, did they even make these up with people with aphasia in mind? And I don't know. I really think that we need more research and we need more diversity in our research. We need more uh, researchers and clinicians really to use these assessments across the board, across the line. So then we can get that better picture with my research. I used it in African-American american stroke survivors with aphasia, African-American stroke survivors without aphasia, and then normal successfully aging African-Americans, because, you know, it's my belief that in order to really understand quality of life within a population, you need to first compare it to that population versus comparing it across populations. And, and some of the things that I found was that social support was huge. Social network was huge. And so these are things that the research has already identified as, you know, important indicators of quality of life. And so I was glad that those measures, even though they don't specifically um, um, target those cultural differences, were
0: supportive of that, that same result. Excellent. Okay. So um, can we talk a little bit more about how some of these quality of life indicators will translate into therapy ideas. Um, Do you have an example you could share where you used it and it did, you know, step one, step two, and it kind of carried on?
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. So I was and I actually just (laughs) just shared this story on on one of my social media platforms. And so my my one my one Wernicke social butterfly, uh, we used a scale and that was it was back in 2013. So I can't recall the exact scale that we used, Um, but she identified. Actually, it was it wasn't. um, Oh, it's going to get me. I can't think of the name of it. But it was a scale that identified things that you like to do. And so it wasn't one of these ones that I mentioned, but it was more of like a card sorting type of task. And so you would put, you know, if it was something that you wanted to do more, then you would put that activity in one pile. If it wasn't something that you identified with, you put it in the other pile. So things like in this case, things like bird watching, (laughs) that wasn't something that this particular patient wanted to do. But she loved gardening. And so as part of our therapy, she had to teach me how to pot a plant. And we, I mean, and it took some, it took some things because we have Wernicke's aphasia. And so, you know, we went through all of the the steps and when I was confused, I didn't do it right. And so this was something that took place over a couple of sessions. So we just didn't start with the pot and the plant. We worked through her giving me steps. And then after we got that down, then we actually brought in the actual materials and she had to talk me through how to do it with the objects in place. And now, you know, I'll, I'll send you a picture, but here, here's part of the plant here. Oh, and wow. it, started, it started super small. So this is part of, it. it got so big that I had to cut it off and repot the other piece. And I'll, I'll send you a picture, but the other piece is now draped along my doorframe because it's so huge oh, and so love it when I did my dissertation talk I had a, a picture of the the pot that the plant that we started and how it grew and it just really solidified for that moment that in that therapy session we were working on all the goals we were working on you know her condensing that that speech into something that was concise but it was something that she was excited to do and when I and I had never potted a plant
0: <laughs>
1: so For her to be able to get me to do that was amazing. So we did those types of things. Um, that was really huge. We would, she used to be a seamstress as well. And so we uh, went out into the community and went to um, a dress store, and I had a list of questions that I needed to know about the dress, and so she was able to, to use those questions and ask, and so those are some of the th- activities that I probably wouldn't have initially planned, but because that was her, her interest, we were able to make it work.
0: That's awesome. Um, how do the quality of life measures change approaches or goal writing? Mm.
1: Um, definitely goal writing, uh, because I think that by putting that context in there, it helps you, uh, it helps you stay focused toward the plan. And so, you know, if, if the goal, some of the goals that you see, you know, patient will name 10 items in a category, why? You know, like, OK, then they can do that. And then and then now what? But what about, you know, patient will communicate a uh, list appropriate for gardening activity? Because we know that that's something Or patient will communicate um, material list for social community and events. You know, and so that is getting at some of those same things, but structuring it in a way that the patient can then carry that out into the community, which I think is huge because one of the conversations that I think has gotten lost within our field is when those therapy dollars run out, they run out Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if we've reached all of our goals or the patient is now at the 90% accuracy that we we've set it's. It's about how does the patient feel now that they're not going to be able to have therapy for a little bit until that next cycle of dollars comes in? And again, you know, that might not be everybody's case depending on where you are, but you know, in my experience with the population that I've worked with, unless you can come out of pocket and pay, you know, $200 a session, then once your therapy dollars run out, they run out. And so if we can at least get you to be able to go back to Bible study, because now you can read that scripture or go back to your gardening types of activities, because now you can at least talk through a scripted piece to participate, then
0: that's a success. Excellent. Um, Did I answer it? I felt like I was like, it was kind of long. I do like, that's what I'm seeing because I've been on this road to go from basically documenting and writing goals from an impairment based model, like a solely impairment based to incorporating more of like what's important to the patient and what's more functional for them and more community driven. And so I guess I have to tell on myself a little bit because I'm an outpatient and I will see them for a span of time. And so I like to write very general goals so that I have a lot of wiggle room so that I can use a variety of uh, techniques or tasks or homework activities as well to meet that goal. And so um, when you gave the example of, you know, the patient will uh, generate a list of gardening or vocabulary relevant to gardening, I feel like that could take a couple sessions, you know, to get up to a happy level. But then once that's met, do I need to like discharge that goal, like do a whole little progress note to the doctor? Like, oh, this goal has been met. Now I'm replacing it with this one. Like, I think I'm probably, my question is going a little bit too technical. (laughs) No, no,
1: no. I think that's a good question. And so like in a case like that, what I would how I would structure it, especially if you know, like, OK, I've got six weeks. And so for that specific example, it may be patient will generate a list of vocabulary terms um, to support uh, community integration with. You know, three activities or three novel activities. And so then that way, that gives you that wiggle room to, you know, not only target gardening, but maybe, you know, seeing uh, clothing or, you know, whatever else the patient, you know, may need to do and still putting it in that context of communication, exchange, and community integration.
0: Awesome. All right. So, how can people use these in their daily practice? Um, I think I mentioned earlier, oh, for yours, your practice, would you do it during the initial evaluation, part of the way through therapy, and then towards the end? How do we use these in our practice? hmm
1: Um, I always start initial evaluation because it's my mindset that I don't know what to work on with you unless you tell me what things you're used to doing. And so, um, again, we have our impairment based things. And so generating the list, you know, that's the impairment based piece because we're looking at that word fluency and organization tasks. But actually putting that in the context of the, the actual therapy activity or the rest of that goal the patient can give us that information. And so I do that right off, right off, um, right off the gate. I always administer those. And then I usually check in. Um, I would re-administer it kind of depending on where they were uh, with the goals that they've already done um, and see if anything's changing. But, you know, also very cautious not to administer them too quick because you can get a false sense of everything's great where everything could just be great because
0: you're having some of that success with therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm really more familiar with using um, like a quality of life index more for voice therapy Um, because we have the voice handicap index, which really gets how how their voice issue is impacting their everyday life. And so administering that at the beginning and at the end of therapy gives really good feedback for the patients. Um, I really enjoyed showing the specific um, lines or like statements that showed the most improvement to a recent patient I had. And it almost helped cement the progress of therapy in their brain, which was kind of amusing because they scored it themselves. Like they had no help from me. And, um, and I could say like, At the beginning of our therapy, you scored this particular quality of life factor very severely, like very low. It was really impacting you. It was a big thorn in your side. And then today you've rated it as almost no impact on you whatsoever. I'm like, that's incredible. That's a huge change. I'm like, that's really exciting. And then it was like, I could like see them processing that and be like, you know what? You're right. (laughs) That was really neat. And so it's funny to me, because we have that established in like the voice therapy world. But I really haven't been doing consistent quality of life factors in aphasia therapy, even though I'm moving more towards this patient centered therapy model and assessment model. It's, it's so much slower going on. And I don't know, I think I just find that so fascinating, that contrast there. Um that it's not just something standard that we do all the time. Um, since you're more in the university world these days, um, would you, I don't know, can you speak to if this is being communicated more to our graduate students? Uh,
1: <laughs> um. Unfortunately, in my experience, it's not. And, you know, I think that I think that in my last in my my last place I was able to kind of come on and, and help champion it and and rally with some of the other supervisors and, and practicing SLPs and kind of do some of the same things that we've done today, whether it's the list or just talking about it and everyone understanding. And so that's one of the positives is that as practitioners, we all know what's important. You know, I never get that that it's not important. The thing that I get a lot is well, how. The how, which mm-hmm. is, is some of the things that we did. And so, I see it now more, but not as often. And um you know, I I'll be cautious to say why um because I'm I'm not sure exactly. Why, But it is something that, you know, I'm excited to be on and and talk with you about it, because I think that if we don't start getting it at that graduate level clinician, then we're going to continue with the workbook therapist. We're going to continue with, you know, I always tell the story at my the last place that I was, we had this thing where it was like group therapy. And so it was group therapy for people with aphasia, which was so awesome. And I remember going in and the clinicians had planned, I mean, they had worked their little hearts out, um, planning, having the individuals plan a trip to Paris. So that was the, that was the activity they were going to, you know, they had to have so much money. They had to be able to navigate, you know, their way through the system and all of that stuff. And they were so excited. And I asked them, and the plan was good. I mean, they had thought through all of the things that the people with aphasia would need and all of the, the, the checks. And I said, well, who in the group is going to Paris? And they were like, nobody. <laughs> so why are we having them go to Paris? Why don't we have them take the, you know, plan a trip on the local transportation system, you know, to the movie theater. And then that's something that we could actually do at the end of therapy. And so I find that once the thing, the light bulb goes off, people get it. But I just think we're still so stuck in, you know, I'm the practitioner. I'm the expert. I know what you need to do to get better. And it's just about giving those reins back
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: or sharing those reins.
0: Yeah. I like that a lot. I, I really like the perspective of coming alongside and being like a guide. And you know, the more information you give me, the more I can guide you in what interests you like what you will find so intrinsically motivating, it won't feel like work anymore. It You may still struggle and you may still feel frustration when things aren't going the way they used to with your language. But I mean like you mentioned with your story with your gardener. I mean you couldn't keep her away from <laughs> from the plants and the pots, right? And so she was all in on that activity and
1: she loved it. And so, you know, now that I'm back in the area, I met with her when I first got back here and I took a picture of the of the one plant that now has produced two plants and I could see the tears in her eyes and I'm like, don't you cry. But I could (laughs) tell that she was so happy that that one little task that we had started now six years later is something that's still carrying on and that she taught me how to do that with aphasia.
0: That's incredible. I love that story. You know what? You're on Instagram. Oh, you should send that story to slp.advocate. She collects these beautiful stories. You probably have like 20 of them you could share with her. This would be so amazing. I will. I will. Just, yeah, Terry has all the feels, all of them.
1: Oh, it was it was the best close. It was the my closing argument at my dissertation defense, and, and there, like literally, when I looked over and saw my my primary advisor, you know, no shade to men, but men could be, you know, like I'm not getting emotional. Like this is just. And when I looked, and he just like his his head turned, his heart melted, and I was just like, yes, got him. <laughs>
0: Oh, only a doctor.
1: I passed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is awesome. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. It's now, I didn't know I had goals, but now I have a goal to like have that kind of interaction with a patient that's so long lasting. You know, we all have the capability to do that from time to time. And I think that's what we all want, you know, with each patient that we see. We want to be able to make that connection and make some kind of substantial impact. On their communication. That's why so many of us got into the field and why we practice. So that's really encouraging to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the other
1: goals I always do, like you know, if a, if a participant indicates on their quality of life assessment that they're having trouble, you know, being understood over the phone, uh, you know, I'll ask them, is that something that they want to work on? And if so, then we bring the phone into therapy. And that goal, you know, looks like a uh, participant will um, produce four conversational exchanges or four conversational turns with You know, minimal breakdown or less, you know, you can cue it and put your accuracy on it how you want. And so it's like writing those goals broad enough to where. You can put in those different activities, so that can go us face-to-face. That can then go, we go into a more noisier setting with some distractions, and they're still having to produce those conversational exchanges. That can go to me going into another room, now talking to you on the phone, and you're still having to produce those conversational exchanges. And so the patient-reported outcomes really just gives us the context to use what we know to do as a a speech pathologist.
0: I like that. Yeah. They can really drive effective therapy. Mm -hmm. We know how to execute it. And now that patient reported outcome measure will give us the means, the tools, the direction, the vocabulary, the, uh, the category in which to execute it. There you go. I love it. I love it. All right. Um, So what's one final thought you'd like to leave with our listeners as we wrap up?
1: Oh goodness. Um, patient knows best, you know, no one, no one knows what it's like to, to have aphasia. You know, no one knows what it's like to have, I can work with it all day. I've, you know, I've been doing it, but I still could not imagine what it's like not being able to communicate or not being able to do some of the things that I do day to day. And then to go to therapy and someone just tell me, what I need to do without taking that time out to ask me what I want to do. And so, you know, at the end of the day, the patient knows best.
0: Mm -hmm. I feel like I need that on a shirt and maybe tattooed like (laughs) on the table. That's an idea. (laughs) That is so true. And that's so, so important perspective to have and to keep coming back to. Um, I love that. Because the other thing,
1: Leah, is like strokes are happening younger and younger. They are. It's like, I think that when we first started, there was this idea that, you know, the individual has the stroke, then they might go to the nursing home or they have this family. But one of the things that I saw a lot when I worked up here, and I'm seeing it a lot even at Georgetown, um, are these individuals, they're super smart, you know, whether they were in some type of political job or um army job, and they're in their 40s. 50s, and they're like, okay, now I might not be able to go back to my six figure job, but I need to do something because I still need an income. And so our therapy has to evolve with what's going on. And unfortunately, the patients are getting younger and younger, and they need to get back to some level of of life.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Celeste, this was amazing. I loved it. This is so helpful and informative. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your work, your research, and your passion with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring Asha CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish.